I don't know, I, I guess I'm pretty bad at this, but what I wanted to do is, could I please... Why don't I just get your number? That's usually how it works. Oh, okay. Lloyd Dobler, 555 555-1342. 555-1342. Okay, I'll give her the message. Okay. She's pretty great, isn't she? What? She's really pretty great, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Good luck, kid. Good afternoon. Goodbye. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at sort of a mini milestone. We are at episode 50, which is Erica's choice. Let's find out what she has chosen for this special occasion. I picked Say Anything from 1989, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, with John Cusack, Ione Skye, John Mahoney, and Lily Taylor. It's about an offbeat young man and a smart and talented young woman who fall in love but face pressures from her very involved father. 50 is also a significant number for this episode because apparently that's how old Jeremy Piven was playing a high school senior. (laughs) Good job. Let's get right to it because the film doesn't waste any time. We meet... Lloyd and Diane, and then by extension, their friends and family through this first section of the movie. We open with Lloyd talking with his friends Corey and DC, and it's all about he's going to ask out Diane Court. And we understand right away that this is a big deal. How do we know it's a big deal? This declaration is met with shock and awe, I would say, and immediately they set about to dissuade him from this. They're putting forth what is to me a very high school teenage argument that brains stay with brains. You don't cross class lines. These classes that are arbitrarily invented, and as so often happens with these things, coming-of-age movies, teen movies from the 80s, it does not reflect my experience. But apparently it's a universal quote-unquote. When you first saw it, is that how you felt about it? Did it make sense to you that they were trying to dissuade him using this as their argument? I was 14 when I watched this, so I think of this as the film that took me out of my teens and made me aspire to something greater than this idea that, oh, I'm going to be having these same conversations that they always have, that I will never be able to, quote unquote, attain this person that seems unattainable, or that others would look on me as that person. I was so busy being involved with school And this also came during the summer, right after I had moved from Virginia, where I grew up, to Idaho, which was a completely different and new experience for me. So I was pretty preoccupied with what is this new landscape going to be? It was the start of high school, and it was in a totally different state, not knowing anybody. So when I look at in that next scene, when Lloyd is taking his own picture Mm -hmm. of his graduation... I really did think, this is how I will make my way in the world. Okay, so you were sad and lonely. <laughs> you had no... As you laugh, as you say that. 
you had no friends. Well, you had, if you're Lloyd, a small coterie of very devoted friends who only talk about how great you are all the time. I wish. No, as I mentioned in previous episodes, I have played Uno by myself. (laughs) I look at it as I'm really good at making new friends because I've moved a lot. Now, on the other hand, we meet Diane and her father. He's driving her to graduation. She already has her cap and gown on. She's practicing her valedictory speech, working on her joke that, of course, only her dad will get. The character detail I love in this for Jim, who is a huge part of this story, is that he has clearly dyed hair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why do you think they made that choice? What is that supposed to represent with that character? I think we see it really pay off at the end. But to me, it speaks to a certain degree of vanity and care about appearance. When Diane, though she possesses obvious natural beauty, is less concerned with her appearance. I'm wondering if it's also representative of a fear of mortality that he has to be thinking about all the time since his work is with seniors. And that degree of compartmentalization that we will see later on too, that you can profess to be this open, honest person, and yet there's a thing that you are lying about to a certain degree. So the Grecian formula tips his whole hand right off the bat. Absolutely. Well, whereas Lloyd has his Greek chorus of the friends who love and adore him, Diane has her father, who is doing that same thing constantly, trying to get her to admit how wonderful she is, how special she is, which doesn't sit well with her. When it comes time for her speech, I really responded to this moment. Again, I wasn't at that age, but that idea of someone being so honest and expressing their fear of what the future might bring. Someone with all the gifts in the world. Well, these were my peers. My graduating class was 1988, so I was essentially this age as this was happening. And it's interesting to me how both of these characters make a declaration right off the bat. The first thing that Lloyd says to clearly delineate his personality is, I want to get hurt, in reference to chasing Diane and possibly failing. And she declares in front of the entire class that our acquaintances, but not friends necessarily, that she is scared. Again, not a thing that I relate to a whole lot. I don't know if it's just straight up sociopathy on my part. (laughs) I see being unsure, certainly, because there's a lot of life left ahead of you at that point, and there's no way to have any accurate idea of how it's going to go. But to be scared of the unknown is not a feeling that I have much familiarity with. I am excited by the idea of not knowing and finding out and going forth. I think about these things that her father is constantly telling her and reinforcing this idea that you are the top of the top of the top. He gives that metaphor later on of the pyramid. That's true. That's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. It is. And when she is also, as we learn a little bit later invested her confidence and sense of security and safety in her father over her mother when they were getting a divorce. And we see how her mother also undercuts her as well. I think it's a little bit of a difficult dynamic to try to overcome. I'm thinking about how both of those ideas can be true, that you can be really optimistic and an overachiever, though I don't like that word, I think of it as just achievement, Mm -hmm. and still have anxiety 
I think back to when I was in school, especially during this period, I felt very encouraged by my friends and family and peers, did very well in school, and at the same time, I always felt that there was a little bit more that I could be doing. More classes to take, more things to learn. What if I fall from this level that I'm at? What if I'm somehow exposed as a con artist and I'm not as smart as I think I am or someone has told me that I am? Okay, that seems like two separate ideas to me. The whole thing about there's always more to do. I like that idea and I relate to that idea. Why does it have to go in tandem with the I'm a fraud who will soon be uncovered? I don't know. I can't explain, I guess, that level of my psyche. I got to the point where I was so anxious that I was one of those people who would wake up in the middle of the night and think it was time to go to school and my mother would find me showering in my (laughs) underwear and socks. I don't think what you're describing is at all uncommon. I hear people say stuff like that all the time, but you can't put your finger on the confluence of circumstances that made that specific strain of it come up in you. No. Is it nature versus nurture? I don't know the answer to that. We'd have to have a lengthy counseling session, I think, (laughs) to figure it out. But I can relate to that to a certain degree. If you are alone, essentially, this is one way it could go. So if your character is making their first declarative statement, a la, I want to get hurt or I am scared, what does Erica say if she's in this position? I guess the thing you've heard me say many times, am I overthinking this? (laughs) Okay. Well, to get back to the film a little bit, I did want to mention specifically, one of the things I like that Cameron Crowe does, that he does fairly often, is that he will take these coming-of-age rituals, graduation, the party that comes later, and he will still give them the weight that is appropriate, but he undercuts them a little bit. He doesn't necessarily demolish them, but he will downplay their significance with the perspective of someone who has gone through it, gone many years to the other side, and now realizes this isn't quite as important as we thought it was then. Whereas a lot of lesser teen films blow those things up to be the be-all, end-all, to be the cliched monumental thing that you see presented over and over again. The modesty of this film And the way it treats stuff like that is one of the reasons that I like it so much. That leads me to a little bit of a tangent. Okay. I want to summarize for a second and then get into a couple of questions and an observation. In these next couple of scenes, we meet the rest of our players. We have Lloyd's sister and his nephew with whom he lives. We've got Corey's family, her mother played by Polly Platt. I'm thinking about the influence that Polly Platt had with early Bogdanovich, Mm. how instrumental she was in the look and feel of those films. And so when we think about leaving behind an overly nostalgic look and investing the characters in the film with even a little bit of weariness, do you think... Or am I just imagining? Do you think Polly Platt had some influence with Cameron Crowe? I know she really helped shepherd this production. She was a producer. She worked closely with him. Or do you think that's just my imagination? I can't see how she wouldn't have. Even just the calming presence of someone with that kind of experience and knowledge. She may not be overtly exerting an influence, but just being there. 
shepherding the project, like you said. The security that you'll often get with knowing that there's someone around who knows what they're doing when, if you're in Cameron Crowe's position, this is your debut feature and a lot is riding on this. I don't think you can overestimate the value of having an experienced hand nearby just in case. It makes me think of that moment in The Last Picture Show when he comes back to the football field and it's as if he is a 40-year-old man at this point. It's not quite the same, but I think again about looking at these rituals and it feels different because I think these characters feel different. So a little bit of a different question than you asked me earlier. My question to you is, do you recognize these characters? I do recognize them, but I recognize them as real people, as non-fictional characters rather than teen movie characters, which is what sets it apart. You know, I mentioned one of the things that I liked about it was that it was modest. And so much of that is rooted in the fact that these characters are drawn from honest, real places and not from exaggerations, not from tropes, not from stereotypes. You can clearly see in multiple places in the film spots where you have to know that, oh, that specific thing happened to Cameron Crowe. That is something that really happened in real life that has made its way into this film. Whereas I don't feel anything like that in, say, for example, the bulk of John Hughes' films. I had a VHS copy of The Princess Bride that someone had recorded from HBO for me. They let the recording go. They weren't paying attention to time, I guess. And it happened to have a featurette of Say Anything on it. I thought you were going to say something about First and Ten with Delta Burke. No, but it also had, uh, it had Teen Wolf, something with Teen Wolf on it. No Dream On? No, something, no, that was, didn't that come later? Yeah. Beastmaster, maybe? No, something with Martin Short, though, or something, maybe Interspace? Interspace? <laughs> or was the thing he was in with the Netto tool? I, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. This featurette. It had this featurette. I kept that copy forever because it was the only way that I could watch this thing that I connected to immediately and have remembered to this day and am delighted to say it's on the DVD that we have. John Cusack at one point said, and I could remember this phrase, that Lloyd is not a glib charm monster. He is not hipper than his years. And those are the kinds of characters that I recognize. These people, these creations that you see in other films involving teens or other, just seem like they're from another planet. I don't even understand how their characters are supposed to work. I don't understand their motivations. I don't understand from what pod they <laughs> grew out of. And that's one of the reasons I've stayed with this film, because I never wanted to be around a glib charm monster or become a glib charm monster. Careful. Am I getting close to that you... territory? You're so charming that you may not be able to help it. <laughs> Don't paint yourself into a corner. Good plan. Well, Lloyd is definitely not a glib charm monster when he makes this phone call to ask her out on a date. And something interesting that happens here to me, I notice that the dissemination of information happens through other people. These critical things that are taking place are communicated through a third party multiple times. Lloyd doesn't speak to Diane first, he goes through her father. Echoing that, when the call comes to let Diane know she was awarded this fellowship, 
that gets translated through her father as well. They don't speak directly to her. And significantly, when John Mahoney tells her that bit of information, he takes her into the kitchen at work, shuts every door, excuses them from everyone, isolates them from everything that's going on to tell her this. Which makes me wonder how many times over the years his character has done a similar thing where he is keeping her all to himself, how vital that is to what he is. He talks specifically about all the work that we did, all the plans that we made are all coming together. Not just her, but you can tell he's been this driving influence this whole time. One of the things that I think it tries to put across is that it is true that her dad knows her better than any other person. Is that a good thing, do you think? Well, I'm not sure if it's a good or bad thing at this moment, but it is the thing that I could relate to because I have a very close relationship with my father. Even though I talk about my mom regularly in this podcast, my dad is the person that I relate the most to. We have the same temperament. My mom, I've had a harder time understanding, and I think she, I, as well. But with my dad, I did always feel like we were in it together. And one last comment for your question. She seems very happy. I don't think she feels the burden of her intelligence in any sort of way. I think she's excited for this new opportunity. She seems to have just a natural happiness about her. That's not the note that I put. I characterize it in my notes as more a self-awareness than a happiness. Not that I find those two things to be contradictory or mutually exclusive. It just felt slightly different than that to me. I think that's a great point, and I hadn't thought about that, but it makes me think of something I watched recently, a Columbo episode, actually, and one of the characters said something along the lines of, I'm going to do what all good girls do the best I can. Well, Lloyd and Diane are nothing if not overwhelmingly good people, which can be a drawback because if you have two characters that treat each other well, that are fundamentally without flaws, then where does your drama come from? Or you can just enjoy a good love story. <laughs> True, it builds itself as a comedy and romance more than a drama, but in the larger sense, your story has to have some tension somewhere to keep people invested in it. So how do you generate that if you've got two wonderful people that are flawless? Or do you not and everyone just lives happily ever after? That's what I thought was going to happen. So we go on our date, we fall in love, we do it, 40 minutes, movie's over. That's a movie I want to watch. <laughs> well, I can show you some websites. <laughs> but because he's good, I think, is what she perceives in him, she agrees to go on this date. They're going to this big end-of-school-year annual party for the seniors. Something she never would have gone to otherwise, we get the sense. Now, there is some conflict to begin with because Lloyd is most likely an offbeat person for most of the normals out there, I guess. And so he has to get past her father first. And Jim doesn't really know what to make of him besides thinking, I guess, maybe at best he's a goof. How long do you think it took him to pick out that jacket for the date? Maybe it was the time period, or maybe it was being in Idaho close to Seattle, that I went to school with a lot of guys who wore that jacket. How many fishbone t-shirts did you see on a regular basis? Very few. That came later. There was one guy in driver's ed 
with that jacket. He brought a boombox to driver's <laughs> ed every day and played The Promise by Wynn and Rome, which I loved. I thought that guy was awesome. But back to Fishbone. So the party is an opportunity for Diane to talk to all sorts of people that she didn't really know over the course of her high school education. Lloyd and Diane are separate for the most part throughout the party. He sort of checks in on her. For Diane, she gets a lot of credit, it seems like, for being there with Lloyd Dobler. And then there are the whole contingent of other people who constantly ask, why Lloyd Dobler? This party scene may be the most pivotal in the whole film for me, because a lot of ideas get touched upon here that are extremely important. One, we revisit what they were talking about in the opening scene, this whole someone being out of your league idea, which does not exist. And I love that they dismantle it so thoroughly in this. When the guy asks, how did you get Diane to go out with you? I asked her. And Diane's response to, why are you here with Lloyd Dobler, is, he made me laugh. What not nearly enough teen and adult movies don't tell you is that almost everyone doubts themselves to a severe degree. Very few people are possessed of utter self-confidence and know the direction they are going and what they want. And that makes almost everyone accessible. More than you have any idea. And I don't say that from the point of view of people are weak and insecure so therefore exploit that. I just mean to let everyone know, and this movie does a very good job of doing this, that the playing field is absolutely level, and thinking otherwise is a myth, because almost everyone has the same doubts and fears that you do. So give it a shot. Do not be afraid. Uh, hold up a second, buddy. <laughs> now, I knew at 14 after seeing this that I am Lloyd Dobler. Okay. Which is odd, because... Do you think it's odd? That... It is odd. I, I think I have more in common with Diane. Essentially, I was probably on more of a similar trajectory. Mm -hmm. But, and I'll get to this at a few points as well. And not just in your case, but as a general rule, do you think that many young women saw themselves as Lloyd rather than Diane? Probably not. But I assumed that this is how I would make my way on my own. That... I was going to be standing for something different than other people and that I would most likely find someone that I would dedicate myself to rather than the other way around. Hmm. Lloyd dedicates himself to Diane, sure. as we see later, because he feels that it's a worthy pursuit. So I was one of those people with self-doubt assuming, oh, no one will ever feel that way about me. And that's been proven right again and again and again. <laughs> One uh, very specific example. Let's backtrack for just a second. When Diane and Lloyd were on the phone, and she was trying to come up with an excuse not to really go out with him. And she had to say, well, no, I'm not monumentally busy. I guess I can do this. So let's rewind a couple of years ago in our life, Cole Lane. <laughs> When I said, I'm just going to go for it, I'm going to take a shot. And you said, I'm really kind of busy right now. Yeah. But to be fair, that was only because we had recently had a very explicit conversation about what we each wanted for the rest of our lives. And it didn't seem like 
specifically in relation to family and children, that those things lined up, and I thought it would be terribly unfair to go into anything with those sorts of things being so far out of alignment. I think you were just a terrible cad. <laughs> That's what I think. Well, it's all worked out. Yeah, we're, we're married. As it, ter- here. as it turns out. And I don't want to set it up as I somehow tricked you into something. No. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> or that I sold out the rest of my life in order to be with you either. No. It wasn't that. We just weren't clear. You said that. You boldly went for it. I did. Which gave us the opportunity to clarify those things. And happily ever after. Yeah. After 24 hours. I think that's how long it took you to wise up. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I saw the light. You are never going to let me forget that, are you? You rotter. (laughs) Back to the movie, Okay. We'll take our psychodrama out of this. The moral of the story being, take your shot. Don't be dissuaded. Don't let people convince you that someone is out of your league. Because you could end up... Married to a pretty cool guy and have a mighty podcast empire. (laughs) Yeah, just ask Sidney McElroy. (laughs) Anyway, other things from the party. The encounter with a guidance counselor. I know this was 30 years ago or so, this film. But I assume it is still happening out there, based on centuries of human history. How have we not figured out at this point that it is completely absurd to ask a teenage kid to decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives. I have interviewed teenage kids for a job at my workplace, and I don't trust them to shelve a book in some cases. Not all cases, obviously. I'm not painting with that broad a brush. But there are certain of them that possess neither the confidence or the self-awareness to alphabetize a flat of paperbacks, much less decide on the course of the rest of their life. It is an absurd idea that needs to be done away with forever. And finally, and perhaps most importantly in this whole thing, the party scene is where we begin to see just how fond of himself Cameron Crowe really is. Really? Tell me more about that. Because surely we know that Lloyd is a highly idealized version of himself. He's writing about himself. And I don't think it's necessarily to exact revenge upon anyone or to rub an ex-girlfriend's nose in it or anything, but I very definitely think that he thinks of himself like this. And that's illustrated by things like the thing you mentioned. She's getting credit for being there with him, not the other way around. Frequently in these situations in teen comedies, that gender stuff is flipped. The weirdo gets street cred for showing up with a beautiful brainy girl, not the other way around. And throughout this date, he makes nary a mistake. He's perfect from beginning to end, to the point at which he drops her off and she is bemoaning the fact that she called him basic. She feels like she blew it, which is a conversation that typically the young man in these movies always has with someone, not the girl with her father. He nailed it. It was the perfect first date. So don't just take his friend's word for it about how great he is. Lloyd's going to show you that he is perfect, and by extension, Cameron Crowe is as well. That interpretation aside, I think that their classmates respond to the basicness of him. Someone who is exactly what he seems, 
who says and does everything in keeping with his character, who lives through words and deeds. They're all the same. And when you're constantly faced with people who are actually glib charm monsters in real life or in movies, it is wonderful to be exposed to someone who is not. I have no problems with Lloyd the character being such a great person. I believe in him. It's easy to believe in him. But I just want to mention... <laughs> you just want to be clear. Right. That it's no accident that this avatar for Cameron Crowe can do no wrong. You mentioned that it's a perfect first date. I think it's really interesting that it takes all this time to finally get to the point where the two characters are talking to each other mm -hmm. face to face. And it's actually a short part of the date. Most of the lead up and the date itself is, as you mentioned, that communication through other channels and through other parties. And in this period that they have to talk, they're sharing about family. She talks about her father and choosing him in this custody battle and setting up this period of time that we have to work with, which is 16 weeks before she goes on her fellowship. One other very important thing about the party that I don't want to forget before we move on is Joe, Lily Taylor's character, her ex-boyfriend, cheater, manipulator. As if we didn't already know how great Lloyd was, we now have a very distinct contrast to measure him against. And out of all the things that happen in the movie, all the great things that Lloyd does, I am truly moved the most by this instance in which he is protecting her from him. That is my favorite thing that he does of all the great things that he does throughout the film. If Joe had this declarative statement to make that you were mentioning for Lloyd and Diane and then me, it would be, so what's up? <laughs> and before we move on, I want to say Lily Taylor is Perfect. Now we're going to move on to the dating phase. We first start with this family audition that he has to get through. Lloyd's basically going to be on trial at this dinner, and in this sort of setting is not particularly equipped for it. I disagree. By whose standard? I'm sorry. Thank you for specifying that. I mean by their standard. He's not equipped to deal with people like that on their terms. I think people like that aren't equipped to deal with him. Good point. Because this demonstrates this scene at the dinner table that not only does Lloyd have a unique ability to see what is special in people, but to acknowledge it, to praise them for it. And it's extremely frustrating to me that that is portrayed as something awkward or some sort of faux pas. I think we end up liking him even more if that were possible, I'm thinking again about that featurette I mentioned, and Cameron Crowe talks about how Lloyd is a warrior for optimism. There's always something good to be found. And I didn't mention it earlier, I wasn't thinking about it until now, but I don't think we've said enough about how, again, this is a different type of film about younger people because that beauty and brains thing does not always go together. Good thing it does here. <laughs> Are you looking at me or yourself? No, I know what you mean about the optimism thing. That whole bot sold processed monologue that he does right here. You know who laughs mockingly at Lloyd during that scene? People who are dead inside. It's true. That's who. Yeah. And I know you really like the moment with the dictionary when they're in her room. My dictionary was exactly like her Love dictionary. It. Did you mark off all yeah, the things you looked up? The other pivotal thing that happens, of course, is another type of exposure. 
we have the first intimation of this other part of the conflict. The IRS shows up at the door. Dad is under investigation. The next few scenes I absolutely love because it's clear that he is letting her talk and listening to her and thinking about what she's saying, listening to her arguments when they don't agree on something. And it has my single favorite moment in this or any other film, which is Lloyd Presents Cocoon. <laughs> this is about them establishing their friendship with potential. And then there's that moment where he's teaching her to drive the stick shift. This is one of those moments that I can't watch because of the pure joy that's on their faces. <laughs> You've seen me have to sort of turn away sometimes at these moments, or maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't noticed. There was a look on your face one time that I couldn't look right at you because it's as if a beam of light is coming out of the person. It's a beautiful scene. What look are you talking about? When I came back that day. Oh. You know that, that You know day. what look. You know that day. Okay, that's perfect, actually, that you mentioned that because that was our first time. Oh my god, I can't believe you said that out loud. Because that's exactly what I wanted to get into next, talking about... Literally. <laughs> the scene coming up where they have sex for the first time. Yes. And the thing that you mentioned through this whole stretch where he's listening and he is paying attention and they are being true partners... And that thing that you are looking for in that person that you want to be with. And I have no qualms admitting to the fact that I was radiant the next day that you came back to see me after that. That is something that I would write into this scene if I was writing this scene. The same way that I think the trembling detail is very much a thing that Cameron Crowe took from his real life. I know Lloyd Dobler as a character defined what a boyfriend should be for an entire generation of people. And I think it's this middle stretch where he is actually giving and sharing and expressing vulnerability that probably cements that more than anything. The next day for them, though, is a part, at least initially. She comes home, clearly after being out all night. This is something I can relate to because it was actually my father who was the one who spoke calmly to me the one time I stayed out all night when I was 16 years old. And we now begin the process of Jim having the ongoing conversation about why you should break up with Lloyd. He understands the stakes that the addition of Lloyd now creates and how through this process of them being able to say anything to each other, Diane and her father, how she really feels, how she is able to put those words to her feelings and finally say that she loves him which is the last thing that he wants to hear. Lloyd is a usurper. He's going to derail this entire enterprise. Now, I don't know the specifics of this conversation that you had with your dad, but you're saying you relate to it somewhat. I'm wondering what it was like for you and for an audience of young women that were watching this in 1989 to see a character their age demonstrate true ownership of her sexuality. She has agency. She made decisions. These were not decisions perpetrated upon her. She was an active participant. Pursued it, in fact. And says as much to him. In somewhat explicit detail for the conversation you're having with the authority figure in your life. Was that shocking to you? Do you remember what that felt like to hear her talk about? Yes and no. Uh, being maybe an only child, I keep a lot of things in, typically. Or I did until, actually, I met you. 
it was to me pretty standard to not share my feelings to that degree with anybody least of all a parent mm-hmm. but i so recognized that i thought that was a beautiful idea and wouldn't it be great if we all did that one other thing about this scene and i wanted to go back to relating to something i mentioned before this indirect communication she tells her dad that she loves lloyd she has not and still cannot at this point tell lloyd himself so does she love him Or is that something she is saying for particular effect in this conversation with her father? I think because of the way it is put together, it really does feel like an evolution. It feels like he's consistently wearing her down. And this moment that she shared... He? Her dad. Okay. And this moment that she shared with Lloyd alone, she isn't comfortable and hasn't felt before to express to her father. And we also see that he's getting more pressure put to him, Jim, again, by the IRS. So he's getting the screws turned on him and it's becoming more insistent. And the end of this 16-week period is quickly approaching. She'll be leaving soon. So I think it is something that she would share with Lloyd, but she still lives at home. The person that she sees most often is going to be her father, at least for this period of time. Is it not also a function of her maybe thinking and talking her way through it and arriving at that Almost as the words are coming out of her mouth, perhaps. And she has said before, let's be deliberate about this. Let's think this through. I think as she applies to her life in general, it's not something that she would blurt out. Well, you mentioned she wants to be deliberate. This defining moment of their relationship has now happened. And due to pressure put upon her by her father, she massively overreacts, it seems like, and calls the whole thing off. She breaks up with Lloyd. I disagree to a certain extent because the obvious thing would be, even if she weren't crossing an ocean to go to school, that if you're moving away, you would most likely break up with the person. It's not crazy. No, it's not crazy, but I don't feel like it's driven by thinking about it rationally like that. I think it's a combination of too much too soon and outside influence that is pushing her to that decision. It's not something that she is sitting down and thinking about, okay, this makes the most sense to do this way, which is how I assume she has treated everything in her life up until this point. This is different. I think what's interesting, I appreciate that it's not an actual Romeo and Juliet moment Mm. for her. It's not treated as, oh, this is clearly true love of the ages and everything swooningly romantic. And so, of course, I will do anything for this. That seems like it would be... a different overreaction. It just seems a slight bit inconsistent with her self-possession and self-awareness up to now that she is letting someone else dictate somewhat this decision for her. And I think it very clearly is demonstrated that it is her father's idea because of the pen. If not for that detail, I can see the argument maybe the other way. But his influence is clearly demonstrating, passing that like a baton, his specter looms over this conversation that they're having. If he wasn't involved in this process, would she be doing this right now, this way? I don't know the answer to that. It would be hard for me to imagine an 18-year-old making the decision that I'm going to take my unemployed boyfriend with me to England. That was the other thing I was going to mention. I am willing to give a little leeway because it is an 18-year-old kid, clearly. There's plenty of room for inconsistency of character. But as you're writing a fictional character... 
as it's not an actual real human being, thinking of it strictly in those terms, it seems a little out of step with how she's behaved prior to that. Agreed. And I'm Lloyd anyway, so I'm going to take the shot. <laughs> okay. Really, from that moment on, for the next bit of time, it's all about him trying to figure out how to get her back. Which then leads to arguably one of the most famous ideas and sequences in film, would you agree? The iconic hoisting of the boombox? Yes. Yes, one of the best and worst ideas ever committed to film for what I'm sure were the legions of people it inspired to somehow imitate that in real life. I know you've mentioned before about how being sung to is one of the most awful things in the world. Where does this fit on the spectrum? Someone standing outside your window playing romantic songs as they hold a boombox aloft. Now, I think I've established clearly, I've come down on the side of stalking is bad. Right. <laughs> okay. So why does this not feel like stalking to so many of us? When you say us, do you mean you? It doesn't feel that way to you. It really doesn't. I would be lying if that would be my first instinct. I tend to agree with you. It strikes me much more as this is a teenage boy doing what he thinks is a grand gesture. This is not a pattern of behavior. This is nothing dangerous. This is someone at the end of his rope and doesn't know how to otherwise communicate this thing. And it is a step too far. And I'm glad that they don't show it working. I'm glad that she doesn't throw on a robe and run out into the middle of the night, wrap her arms around him and everything is okay. I'm glad that she does not respond to it. But I would agree. I don't feel it is extremely stalkery. I think it is what seemed like a good idea carried a step too far because of the relative immaturity of the person who would be doing that. I'm sure I've done dumb things in the name of love. Have you not done something similar to this? Have you gone this far? I think mine have been poorly timed emails after the fact. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no no boomboxes. Yeah. No serenades. No. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> and there is probably some Facebook trolling. Okay. But again, long in the past. Facebook's not that old. Okay? Yeah. So it can't have been that far in the past. <laughs> Shut up. Okay, so Lloyd and Diane are broken up. Diane, meanwhile, is still struggling with this investigation happening with her father, and she takes it upon herself to go to the IRS office and speak with the wonderful Philip Baker Hall, which I really also appreciate that Cameron Crowe took pains to make even this character interesting. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. This could have been a simple functionary factotum nothing, and they actually went to the trouble to cast Philip Baker Hall, yes. who injects it with exactly the right personality. And unlike this premise that her father has set up, which is that we can say anything to each other, this IRS official is the one who is going to tell her the truth, which is that here is the scenario. We've been investigating him for five years. He's created phony billing, phony patients for the senior home that he runs. And he tells her specifically, don't let your father's business infect your life because he's guilty. And he behaves like a guilty person. In retrospect, when you go back and watch the little things he does, his overreaction to her relationship with Lloyd, all sorts of little things, he clearly acts like someone who is overcompensating for something that only he knows. So in this moment, she goes home and 
finds the evidence of his wrongdoing, she finds all of this cash. She goes to the home to confront him, gives him a chance to tell her the truth, and he doesn't take it right away. And this part I think is fascinating, and I'm so glad it's John Mahoney, who's so wonderful. It's the compartmentalization that I mentioned, the justification, the rationalization for basically his amoral behavior. I'm going to go farther than amoral. I'm going to say immoral. He's actually a thief. He is taking things that don't belong to him. That's more than just a gray area. You're absolutely right. And the point that I love that she makes, which is that I told you everything. I was always honest with you, and you lied to me for years. I cannot imagine what that would feel like. The weight of your entire world turning in that moment. Everything that you believe to be true, everything that you set up for yourself, every plan that you made, every basis you made for your life's decisions, all completely based on lies. After this, she goes directly to Lloyd. This is the impetus for her to seek him out. Because he's the person that she can actually say anything to. He's reticent. Is she pulling a Joe on him at this point? Because he's seen it happen to other people, now he has to be wondering, is that what is happening to me? And I think he asks the intelligent question, do you need someone or do you need me? And then decides, well, he doesn't care anyway. But she does say, I need you. And I believe her. And now it's the ending. We've got this... Again, huge important scene which really struck me when I was a kid watching this a 14-year-old. I didn't expect to see this kind of scene happen, which is in the jail yard. It's Lloyd and her father, as it has been so many times through the course of this film, having this conversation. The point being, Diane hasn't spoken with her father since that moment. And Jim wants to know, are you going to England with her? This is the payoff for that earlier setup, he's got no hair dye because he has no access to it. So he's a different looking person. And Lloyd talks about how they had decided that he wouldn't, which makes Jim happy, but then Lloyd reconsidered. And what he wants to do for a living is be with Diane. He's good at it. This is the dedicated pursuit that his life has been looking for. And it's up to Lloyd to bring this letter that she's written. Diane won't get out of the car at this moment. More of that indirect communication. And Jim is surprised that she's still angry with him. For him, I think it's done. It probably was from the moment that he did any of these deeds before. What do you mean exactly? What's done? The act that he committed and any consequence for it. So he can't understand why she would still be angry. All this time has gone by. Surely she must have gotten over it. He's had... Years and years to get used to the idea of what he is, and therefore cannot adjust to her just figuring it out. And then she's there, and they do have a moment. Again, in that different view, we see them in the background having this moment, but our eyes are on Lloyd. And that pin comes back. There are a number of things that I like about this scene. You mentioned how striking it was to see when you were younger, when you saw it the first time. I think a lot of people probably felt that way, because how often did you see... This sort of exchange, the anger directed from an older authority figure at a younger person that wasn't their parent, a cop, a school administrator. It seems like they're equals almost because Diane's father has fallen to the level where Lloyd is at now. Lloyd, in fact, has the upper hand. He's a free man. 
But it's a rough thing. It's a verbal beating that Lloyd has taken, especially when he is shouting at him about he never imagined that his daughter would champion mediocrity in this way. It's really harsh. But he takes it and he stands his ground, which I really love about this scene. It's a thing that we talk about frequently, you and I, about all sorts of stuff. If you have the courage of your convictions, if you believe in where you're standing, you cannot be easily moved off that spot. And it's just one more instance where Lloyd comes through. He has never failed her. He's not going to be that easily dissuaded from being with her. On the other hand, he's a goofy 18-year-old kid saying, this is what I want to do for a living. If someone that age said that to you in this situation, how are you going to react? Am I my age now or am yeah. I also 18? No, you're your age now. <laughs> well, if we're real humans, then again, we don't think, oh, this is Romeo and Juliet again. We're probably thinking, uh, I give it a year, maybe. <laughs> or, hey, kids, go for it. See what happens. I also just really appreciate this scene from a structure standpoint. The film didn't end when she said, no, I need you. Mm -hmm. Happily ever after. We actually see what's going to happen later. The last thing that I enjoy about it as kind of a grace note is that thing you mentioned about how it's shot with Lloyd in the foreground as Diane and her father are embracing in the background. And you can see true happiness and satisfaction in his face that they are reconciled. It's very selfless, it feels like. It is very Lloyd. It is very giving and supportive. It is exactly what that character would do at that point. And then finally, we get a true end, which is also really interesting. It's on the plane as they're leaving. And she's never flown before. She's terrified of it. He's talking her through the steps, through takeoff, and alerting her to the moment where you know everything's going to be okay. And we have that last really hopeful optimistic line about how nobody really thinks this will work but because of that you just described every great success story now based on what you said just a few seconds ago about and eh, i give it a year do you feel like this is the beginning of a great success story is it different watching it now than when you saw it before i 100 percent thought it was a success story when i saw it at 14 and i still agree even though i am saying pragmatically you can think about where they are in their lives, but that's also no reason why they couldn't succeed, why these characters couldn't succeed together. So it's full of potential. Full of potential. Lloyd is a warrior for optimism, and I do feel what they're feeling. I have a question for you specifically okay. related to that. A lot of critics and viewers cite the genuine feeling and emotion in this. Do you agree with that? Do you feel those same genuine feelings? For example, Roger Ebert said it's actually ennobling to watch this. I'm not sure if you would go that far. If I have any cynicism about it, it is based solely on what I was saying about how I feel like this is Cameron Crowe doing a little self-aggrandizing. But if I just take it as this story about these two characters, then I very definitely feel that way about it. I still enjoy it, even knowing... There's that nagging feeling in the back of my head that he is rewriting his own history. And I do have some qualms about such flawless characters as protagonists. I like mine a little bit more complicated than that. But their genuineness and sincerity and modesty that I mentioned in the early going is so thorough and consistent 
and I'm moved specifically by little moments that I feel like are taken from real life, that I can't argue with it, taking it on its own merits. What moved me at 14 to say, this is my favorite movie, is the same thing that moves me now, which is earnestness above all things. I always will respond to that. And I think this has earnestness in spades. So is that why you chose it? A couple of reasons. One was specifically related to your comment during The Pope of Greenwich Village, that that was your 14-year-old movie. Okay. And I suddenly realized this was mine. That's when I saw it. As I just mentioned, I said this is my favorite film. And I said so for decades. I finally stopped at a certain point because it had actually been kind of a while since I had revisited it. And I had moved into that period as you and I started to talk more about film and experience in general, that maybe the thing I liked then is not the same thing that I like now. And would I respond to it in the same way? So when we watched this for the episode, it had been a good 10 to 15 years since I had seen it. I'm thinking also about a moment I just experienced listening to our friends over at FUDS on Film. Mm, okay. One of their recent episodes, I believe it was Drew who said, decent film plus time does not equal masterpiece. And I know you talk about the horrors of nostalgia sometimes. I hate it. (laughs) It's one of the most toxic impulses you can have, I feel like. So I didn't want to fall prey to it, and I was absolutely delighted to realize that my memories of this were actually fresh and complete. Now, I should clarify, I make a distinction between something that we remember fondly that still holds up for specific reasons and nostalgia. Those are two different things for me. If you watch this film now and you find in it the same qualities or different qualities that make it a worthwhile endeavor, that is totally fine. I don't want people to confuse my anti-nostalgia thing with saying everything you remember from childhood is terrible. That's not what I'm saying. If it is still valid and has value... Certainly celebrate it. Absolutely. And so I feel that a movie I thought was great at the time, I still think is great for the same and different reasons. Would you still say it's your favorite? No. Okay. I say at this point, I actually don't have a favorite anymore. I have a list Mm -hmm. and it's staying on that list. Speaking of movies on your list, do you have one to add to our list of recommendations? I do. Thought a lot about this. Okay. And I was thinking about those in movies that inspired me, again, from their earnestness and simple joys of love. And also, I want to talk about this because no one ever talks about this film, to my knowledge. And it is Two Family House Hmm. from 2000. Okay. Directed and written by Raymond DeFolita. Another one of those where I felt like the person who created it felt it so deeply that he had to be the one who directed it as well. I haven't seen this one. It's with Michael Raspoli, Kelly McDonald, and Catherine Narducci. Set in the 50s, it's about a dreamer who feels that his wife and friends are binding him to his mediocre existence until a young immigrant woman opens up his world. It's another one of those that on, on paper, it seems like an unlikely pairing, but when you watch their hearts start to open, the genuine honesty and sharing and compassion that they give to each other, when that love starts to happen, it feels earned. 
I saw this and it really touched me. I think it's a very special small film. Well, as much as I respond to the modesty of Say Anything, I will have to add that to my list. How about you? For my recommendation, I'm going off of the tangent of siblings appearing in films together. Because I really love John and Joan Cusack together. I don't know if it's a function of having a sister that I think is super cool as well, and that I think we would do a very good job doing that, but I really like to watch them. And they've made ten films together now. Oh, I didn't realize so many. Great. So following that tangent, way, way back in the dear dim past to 1932... My recommendation is Rasputin and the Empress. I was going to say, of course, but (laughs) never would have guessed that. Also a movie that I think people don't talk about very much, if I had to guess. Directed by Richard Boleslavsky and starring all of the Barrymores, John, Ethel, and Lionel. The only film that they all three appeared in together. It's a highly fictionalized account of the waning years of the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, and the mad monk Rasputin and how he insinuated himself into their family. It's significant for me for a number of reasons. One, I especially love Lionel Barrymore, who I think you probably do as well. Absolutely. All of those Capra films he was in, he was probably one of our favorite elements in all of those, especially You Can't Take It With You. He's Rasputin in this, and he does an incredible job. He's so fun to watch. There's a lot of big theater acting in this. It's obviously a big melodramatic costume drama so it's got those flourishes to it but he especially is fantastic but like i mentioned it's the only time all three were in a film together it's the first sound film that ethel barrymore was in so her voice recorded for the first time and interestingly because of a huge lawsuit against mgm it was the impetus for that fictional character's disclaimer that you see now at the beginning or end of every film None of these characters are supposed to represent anyone living or dead. That likely would not be in place if not for this film being sued. Because Rasputin was super litigious. (laughs) If he wasn't, he should have been. So that's two great recommendations, two family house, and Rasputin and the Empress. And that brings us to the end of episode 50. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since the last episode. Jeff Duncanson, Matteo Boscarol, Ross McLeod, Andy Wolverton. Scott Morris, Craig Eastman, and Drew Tavendale over at Fuds on Film. Tim Lego, RJ Tugas over at Make Mine Criterion. Neil Barnholden, Jane Sankner, Grindhouse Dave, the guys at Melbourne Cinematic, Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be The Place. And again, one round of special thanks to Eddie Muller and everyone at the Film Noir Foundation and the Noir Zone for sharing our episodes and getting the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to leave us a review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 